You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome to another episode of Surely You Must Be Joking, Dr. Fleming. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and, and with me as always is our namesake, Dr. Fleming. Thanks for joining us. Well, it's always a pleasure. Today we're going to be discussing yet another thing which, which may shock people to hear uh, Dr. Fleming uh, put forward, but after they get to hear him give his case, they, they end up agreeing with him. And that subject today is going to be representative democracy, so-called. The idea that in democracy we elect someone, we hire them to represent our interests. What is right or wrong with that proposition, Dr. Fleming? Well, <clears throat> I'm going to try to uh, show today <clears throat> that uh, the, whole, the whole idea is inherently absurd and based on a misunderstanding of human nature and of human politics. But, you know, if, it's always nice to start at the beginning. We know that democracy begins with the ancient Greeks and that it was turned into perhaps something more, uh, more disciplined uh, in Rome. Now, it is an interesting fact that neither the Greeks nor the Romans ever uh, developed a theory or a practice of representative democracy. Now, uh, for example, it was one of the great problems in the development of the Roman Republic when, after all, a city conquered all of Italy and then North Africa and uh, southern France and parts of the Middle East and Spain. So the city government is actually running a, a huge empire, the biggest empire that the world had seen up until that point. And you would have thought, and uh, Theodor Mommsen, the, the Nobel Prize winning uh, historian, uh, one of the great German intellectuals of the past 200 years, Mommsen said he, he thought it, it was bewildering that they never came up with the idea that Spain would send representatives, Gaul would send representatives, Northern Italy, that all these different communities would send representatives. And and he, he doesn't understand this. He himself was a member of the German parliament and a, a, prominent, a prominent political liberal. At Athens, for example, which is a much smaller uh, place, you know, all, all of Attica is smaller than an average, uh, uh, an American county probably, but in Athens you again did not have uh, representative government. You had systems in both Rome and Athens of electing officials, electing various kinds of magistrates or selecting them. Some of them were, uh, were done through elections, some of them uh, at Athens particularly were, uh, were done by selection by lot. And you had various levels of the community, tribal or you know tribal organizations or lo local uh, local uh, jurisdictions that were part of the process. But once you were elected to the Roman Senate, or once you became a uh, a member of the council, the boule in Athens, or once you were a, an Athenian magistrate, you were there representing the entire people. You were not representing a district. So there were no representatives in Athens from Eleusis or Nicaea and Roman citizens, if they, if they, even no matter where they lived, if they couldn't come to Rome itself and take part in public meetings, then they really couldn't uh, be part of the political process. So the argument on the table for, for, for Theodor Mommsen was, gee, if the ancients had only learned this, they could have solved some of their problems. I say 
Absolutely not. That the ancients were right and we have made a mistake. I'm not saying that you can't make representative government work because you can make a lot of things work. I mean, you can you could probably survive living at uh, eating at McDonald's once a day for two years. But I mean, that's not perhaps the best way to live. And, f- and again, Dr. Fleming, when you're, you're talking about representation, you're talking about, let's say, a specific deem, a district, what we would That's use right. in modern political parlance, a, a district. You're, you're not talking about a representative in, in the broad sense that the tribune was the representative of the people. Right, exactly. The okay. Exactly. Now, um, and of course, I don't want to get into the, uh, as, 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 as Bill O'Reilly would say, the minutiae. Uh, which he, he can't even pronounce the word correctly, but uh, of, well, he doesn't of, have uh, to worry about that anymore, does he, Doctor? <laughs> no, I, is he is he out? I mean, I knew he was on the way. No, he he's he's out. Uh, the, yeah. the, the joke the joke trending on Twitter this week was the killing of Bill O'Reilly <laughs> after all of his killing jokes. The um, you know years ago, I mean, ten fifteen years ago, I wrote a piece on why Bill O'Reilly was the plague of uh, of television political discussion because of effrontery, stupidity, ignorance, and just basic dishonesty. Fooling around with girls or making salacious remarks is the least of his sins. What, whatever caused him to be gone, it's a it's a relief <laughs> that, that you can turn on the television. Okay, here's a, here's a, here's a basic fact which ancient Athenians knew. Elections, uh, when when you vote for somebody in an election, that and uh, elections are bought and sold by one means or another, either by trading favors or by simply buying votes. The way, say, Joe Kennedy bought Jack the primary in West Virginia by paying so much per head per vote. Okay, it's as simple as that. This happens in Chicago all the time. It happens in Texas all the time. That and, and so the the ancient Athenians were well aware of this. They thought that they had what they called a democracy, which means rule by the people. Rule by the people means the people, not just the wealthy elite that can buy elections or and pull strings. All representative government is inherently corrupt. That is because you have a small group of people who can be bought or who can buy themselves. For example, famously under George III, the king, through special ministers, bought himself a parliamentary majority using his own money. And hence, he could act, he and his ministers acted with considerable arrogance toward the American colonies. And the result was the American Revolution and probably the biggest mistake uh, an English king made since uh, Charles I ended up getting executed uh, for some of his mistakes. So they, they, Later on, in the later 19th century, of course, Parliament was independent of the king, but now what they did is, and so they couldn't, they couldn't be bought, but they could buy. And, or they, could, they would be bought by special interests who gave them their, their seats. And then they turned around and taxed the, the population, usually the wealthier segment, and then spent some of the money <clears throat> buying votes for themselves by giving away stuff to the, to the so-called poor. And this this is corruption. Our whole our whole system is based on the idea that presidents and congressmen and senators and governors will give my money away to to people who don't deserve it, who didn't make it, who didn't earn it, will take my money and buy power with it. So all representation 
is corrupt inherently. Democratic representation is worse because the, represent- the, the bribers don't even use their own money. <clears throat> At Athens, they assumed that all officials, elected or chosen by lot, however they came to power, they assumed that the magistrates, the officials, were crooks. Why did they assume that, Dr. Fleming? Because it was true. Oh, there are exceptions. You know, Aristides the Just, you know, Chemon. Uh, there are a number of people, but it's basically, you know, people are people. You know, the heart of man is the place the devils dwell in, we're assured. And with, with you know, m- most men, especially politicians, are very simple people. If they were had complex minds, they wouldn't go into politics. They're simple people with simple appetites. Money, power, sex, that's all they want. And to get that, of course, they, they, you, you, they, they have to take and give bribes. I mean, they're inherently corrupt. The Congress of the United States is, by definition, a corrupt body. <clears throat> the Athenians, being more practical than we are and more honest than we are, the Greeks rarely lie about these things. You know, somebody's a homosexual, they'll say he's a homosexual. If somebody likes boys, he'll say it. He won't pretend and just be, well, I'm actually a Boy Scout leader and I'm only interested in their well-being. Now, you don't get that stuff in the Greeks. They're, they're, right. they're very straightforward. So they assume this and therefore <clears throat> every senior magistrate on leaving office would have to undergo a scrutiny in which he was presumed guilty and had to prove himself innocent of corruption. And if he couldn't prove himself innocent, uh, much of his property was confiscated and he had to go into exile. So, I mean, they were, I, by the way, I would propose that today for every, everybody holding, a, holding an elective office starting with city councils uh, across America. Let them, let them be assumed guilty, and if they can't prove their innocence, let all of their wealth be confiscated. So, the Athenians assumed this. Second of all, what the Athenians and the Romans knew is that if somebody is selected for office, whether he's elected or, or, uh, or chosen by some other method, he is going to work on his own account that, uh, and not for his constituents. This is, this is, this is uh, self-evident that you know, people are more... It's like we have this belief that if, if uh, you, you're too busy to look after your own children, so you become a high school teacher or a social worker, and you really care more about other people's children, even though you've just shown by abandoning your own family, you don't care that much. The fact is that even a very poor parent probably cares a lot more about his children than the most noble-minded social worker or teacher. So we have the same problem. We think that we can send people into government and they will care about the people. But they won't, they won't be looking out for themselves. And of course, now at Athens, they set up this elaborate sorting method and, uh, for choosing offices you know, by lot because they knew that elections were inherently crooked because the wealthy buy themselves the election. Why do they, they, why do they call the Senate of the United States the Millionaires Club? Because if you're basically to get there, you have to either be worth many millions of dollars in order to buy an election or once you get there, you have to start stealing rapidly the way Lyndon Johnson did so that now you can afford to buy elections. So it's the, 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 I think most people in America surely know that, they're, that uh, most senators and congressmen are incredibly corrupt. 
Uh, so the Athenians did this, they, but they, they didn't allow elections for most offices because they knew that elections were simply bought and sold, and they're inherently undemocratic because they favor the rich. Who is the president of the United States right now? Just some poor schmo real estate developer in New Jersey? No, an extremely wealthy man. And if they're not wealthy themselves, then they are the pawn of people far more sinister and far and 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 men of great wealth as as a Donald Trump's predecessor was. Now the Athenians did uh, figure there were certain offices where you had to have rich, well uh, people with with great influence and background, and so those they uh, allowed to be elected, and those were to be uh, general, that is to be uh, part of the military planning team or to handle large sums of money to be to work in the, in the state finance and those it was assumed that the rich would buy those offices pericles stayed in power as a, as a general uh, uh, election after election because he had the he had the voting machine that that could produce this and they thought th- these are two offices where you don't want democracy to work you don't want just the average guy on the street to be handling the budget or the the military and so they knew that by the very fact that they made certain offices elective, they showed that they knew that elections were inherently undemocratic. Well, if if the Greeks knew this, and and the as you say, the, the issue of of uh, Peter Laslett was saying that the poor Greeks they didn't know any better. When we look at our our quote-unquote representative democracy, what are the problems that we have now? If it isn't entirely obvious, Dr. Fleming, why don't you look at, why don't you explain some of those problems and then talk about some of those problems as as you scale. Yeah. Now, um, you, it's interesting, you, 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 you bring up Peter Laslett, the great, uh, the great British his social historian. And Laslett uh, is a brilliant man, and I have... Uh, at least metaphorically, sat at his feet studying his work for many years. Although I, I disagree with him profoundly on uh, a lot of a lot of big issues, you always read him, especially his book uh, like the what is it what is it the world we lo- the world we have lost about, uh, about this sort of the medieval world uh, that we no longer live in. Laszlo famously argued that um, all politics had to be face to face interactions. What they in you know in Italian they say. Uh, that we are, I, I want to talk to you a quattro occhi. I want to talk to you with four eyes. In other words, face to face, two eyes to two eyes. And because that's the only way, uh, even with all this technology we have, the only way people really have of communicating is person, is person to person. And uh, Laszlet said, so that in a, in a, when you have a representative system, then you have two face-to-face communities. You have the world of everyday life where I know my neighbors, my wife, my children, my workmates, whatever, and that's a, a set of interlocking face-to-face communities. And then there's the Congress or the, the British Parliament, and that's a face-to-face community. And so how do you, how do you get these, these two things to, to synchronize? Now, he thought that um, that, that representative government actually worked. That is, you... you uh, you could that people elected from across the UK could get together in Parliament and somehow, through some mystical process, the the wishes and desires and needs and aspirations of the various sectors of the British community would be uh, would be represented. 
Now, this is hilariously wrong. It's contrary to everything we know about human experience. Now, common sense tells us this can't work. Uh, Stephen, have you ever been to uh, something like, you know, a seminar or a a Liberty Fund uh, seminar or a, 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 a religious retreat where you have 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 people for, let's say, more than two days? Yes. What happens? Within a couple of days, the real world, the world of your wife and children and friends and neighbors and family and workmates begins to fade out. And you are now a member of a new world, a world defined only by this little group you belong to, even after two or three days. And factions are formed. People you never knew before, all of a sudden, you're on their side and you're drawing lines, you're conspiring, you're making deals. This happens every single time that anything like this goes on. It, 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 and uh, usually <clears throat> I find myself uh, <laughs> the goat, the one that everyone's organized uh, against. But so we know that. We know that's how when you get into a small face-to-face group, even your nearest and dearest no longer mean as much to you for those few days as making deals within the group. The group and the factions in the group become realer than the actual real world of family and, and home and, uh, and workplace. And that's exactly how Congress works. You go to Congress and, you know, you come from, a, you know, let's say you were just a, a nice businessman. And let's assume that you, you, you hadn't been uh, elected to office in high school or college. You've never been in politics. You're, you're, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. But within a few weeks, of course, you're, you're part of a system and you have allies and friends and faction members and you're drawing lines, you're making deals, you're making compromises and your identity is bound up with being a member of this very powerful, significant, small group. I mean, I could tell you hundreds of stories. I remember once I was trying to get into my hotel in Washington. I was with the late Sam Francis and they were filming a movie. And I said, you mean I can't go to bed because you're filming a movie? Sorry, sir, that's the way it is, said the policeman. So um, Sam Francis said, excuse me, sir. He said, officer, I, uh, I work for Senator East, Senator John East of North Carolina, and this man is a guest of the U.S. Department of Education. He's here doing important work. Are you saying that he is not allowed to go in? And so I said, no, sir, I'll show you the back door. And the question, and, and I said, well, certainly it wasn't the Department of Education. So he said, you name a senator in this town and you get what you want. So mm-hmm. that, 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 is, that, that is the reality. Have you, have you met many uh, senators or congressmen, Stephen? I mean, just, I, I, maybe, I, maybe just a couple of congressmen in my time, but they're the sort of you know, young uppity types that yeah. are hoping to, hoping to get to the big leagues, I think, yeah. rather than, than any of those grave senatorial types. I um, I've, I've known a number uh, over the years, and uh, some of them are decent men. But a friend of mine from college, I, maybe I won't mention his name, but his his uncle was one of the most powerful men in Congress, and he succeeded his uncle, and uh, he became a byword even in the U.S. House of Representatives, a byword for corruption. But even before he went in, he was offering, even when he was only working for his uncle, he was offering to do me favors, like he was going to get me out of the draft by simply signing his uncle's name to a letter. 
I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's an, or uh, or we have our uh, congressman from uh, from Rockford, Don Manzullo. And I knew Don. I mean, he was an okay guy, not very smart and, and extremely uneducated, but he was not a bad fellow. But and he he was on the small business committee in Congress, and he was supposed to be working to help small businessmen. But he always opposed any measure that would promote U.S. business interests as opposed to foreign interests. In other words, no no border adjusted uh, VAT tax, no no tariff uh, adjustment, no attempt to make, for example, Asian business interests like the Japanese, the Chinese, and the South Koreans to make them toe the line and obey the, the agreements. Well, <clears throat> Don stepped down after, you know, I don't know, four or five terms, and he went to work as a lobbyist for South Korea. Mm. All right, it's as simple as that. And people were shocked. How can you be shocked? He had, uh, look at when, uh, when Reagan stepped down from president, he took, what was it, a one or two million dollar speaking fee plus expenses from the Japanese? And when the Japanese were asked, why do they do this? It's a reward. He always opposed tariffs, you know, and, and punishing Japanese business interests. This is a reward. So the Japanese could actually pay off the president of the United States, who is supposed to be the greatest man since George Washington, if you're a, a, a brain dead Republican. And yeah. but that. Yeah. There's a there's a documentary <laughs> film called The Killings of Tony Blair that documented his uh, movement into. Uh, speaking fees and 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 consulting for um, Middle Eastern countries while he was allegedly the peace envoy for the United Nations. It was it was a, a nest yeah. of conflicts of interest. It's interesting, Doctor Fen, when you you talk about being subsumed in that atmosphere of Congress. I'm reminded of a story that I first heard at a summer school with you some years ago now about Davy Crockett and uh, a fire uh, in D.C. And some of our listeners might not know that story, but I think it would be instructive to, to recount it to talk about the fact that someone may go to Washington with the best of uh, intentions, but uh, they get pulled into, as you say, the club. Yeah, um, there was a there was a fire in Georgetown. And um, Congress voted because, after all, these this, these are they're right there. They 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 begin to care too much about what happens in in uh, in the D.C. area, and so they voted for a monetary relief for the victims of this Georgetown fire. Relief, which, by the way, uh, nobody else in the country was going to get for for if their house burned down. Similarly, like when uh, when. Uh, uh, big cities begin to go bankrupt, then somehow the federal government is supposed to bail out New York City, which is which is an absolute outrage. Let, let them sink beneath the waves. I couldn't care less. But so Crockett uh, voted for it, even though, you know, he was a very much a small government, small D Democrat. He goes back home and he's running for uh, re-election. And one of his constituents said, you gave away that money, Davy, to those people in the fire. And Crockett said, well, you know, they were in a bad way and there was a problem, et cetera, et cetera. And the constituent just said, it ain't your money, Davy. It ain't your money. And Crockett tells this story on himself as a means of reminding himself what all, what all representatives said. They're not spending their own money. They're spending the, the taxpayers' money. They're spending the citizens' money. But even Davy Crockett, a man I, I thoroughly admire, by the way. I mean, he he uh, he had he he stood up against his hero uh, Jackson uh, in uh, the Indian removals, and you know he 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 was a man of courage and integrity. Maybe not, but not a brilliant intellectual, to put it mildly. But he was he was a genuine American hero, and he knew that it, with all the best intentions, he had nonetheless done wrong. 
Now, imagine what this this what this brings up, though, Stephen. Is it's it's a great story because Crockett was home. This would not have happened to him in his office in Washington D.C. And the big reality check for a lot of these congressmen and senators is the rare occasion when they come home and try to press the flesh either because they're running for uh, re-election or they want to because there's a big issue and so they'll have a town meeting. Now, more recently, of course, uh, George Soros and his buddies have organized so that anytime a Republican has a town meeting, uh, they, they go after him and yell against him and won't let him speak. But before that start of nonsense began, uh, you know, the, it was a time, returning to the district, a time for politicians to remind it, be reminded that it is voters who put them in office. You know, the other day, some Republican was ranting about this and, and somebody shouted, I pay your salary. And, the, and the, the, the congressman was offended. He said, you don't pay my salary. You know, I, I've made my money. Well, it turns out he did take a salary, but he was offended. The whole idea that the, he was responsible to the people of his district offended him. And if they were, if more of them were honest, they would be publicly offended. What I, I've always dreamed of, let's suppose you had a rule that everybody in, elected to government in Washington had to spend half the year at big stretches of a time back in their district, and they had to be holding meetings every day with constituents, some of them quite disgusted and angry, and they had to listen to the insults. It'd be the equivalent of being put in the stocks you know, in 17th century Boston so that people could throw, throw rotten vegetables at you and insult you. This would be uh, one way in which you could have some attempt at bringing representatives to, to recognize the reality that they're not there on their own nickel. They're not representing their own high ideals or whatever it is they claim to represent. And they're certainly not elected to show the interest. You know, Burke, yeah. As a compliment to that, Doug, I, I would follow Alaska and Texas in having part-time legislatures, so you'd have to have your own job uh, yeah. during the rest of the year, so you wouldn't be able to just, uh, to, to just have this job uh, the entire time. That would also, again, reconnect you to the, the city and the society that you live in. You'll go through the problems of uh, taxes affecting your business if, you, if you're a small business owner or... or uh, your job, if if you own a if you have a job as a representative, I, I think that that would be a necessary complement. In addition to those, uh, I think the 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 MPs in in Britain call them surgery, when yeah. they, they they meet their constituents once a week, and and I suppose that's something that I part of what I uh, admire about the the British system that's got its own problems, but those constituencies, although they've bloated over the years, they're still fairly s- small. Yeah. Of course, the, the United Kingdom is a much smaller country than the United States. But when I think about what you're saying, town halls, I mean, I, given the, uh, the the constituencies in different states, I mean, that would just be uh, such such a small slice of the population uh, yes. of that person's district. Can we say that it's representative? I don't know. So even no, if you're trying to yeah. be representative, yeah. quote unquote, it isn't really. Yeah, it the 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 idea would be to drag them down from uh, from their their pinnacles of power and and uh, and isolation. Uh, the only group that's as isolated as the as politicians are college professors 
You know, that is, they don't live in the real world. They don't know any real people. They have no knowledge of human experience or human reality. Once upon a time, they had to know things like uh, hit literature and history, and they don't know that anymore. And so the college professor is simply, you know, a neutered ideologue living in this sheltered existence. Well, you know, politicians, although they're in the gritty reality of crime and corruption, and, you know, breaking the law on a, on a regular basis every day, nonetheless, nonetheless, they are sheltered from the ordinary uh, exigencies of everyday life. And to drag them back to their district where they're just, oh, I remember him. In fact, um, you know, John Anderson, who was the Republican turncoat who represented uh, Rockford, uh, lived in the house next door to where I'm living, and he still owned that house, and his neighbors all told me what a rotten neighbor he was. You know, he didn't take care of his house. He let a motorcycle gang move in because it was a nephew. They terrorized the, uh, the uh, otherwise quite nice neighborhood. And, of course, <clears throat> John Anderson, as a Marxist told me, had been bought by wealthy Marxists, and that's why he, he was run against uh, Reagan, you know, to try to divide the vote. And, the, the, uh, and as uh, my friend... The Marxists said, well, you know, I like people like Anderson because when they're bought, they're, they stay bought. We tried to buy Eugene McCarthy, but he wouldn't stay bought. You see, <laughs> McCarthy turned out to be the, one of those rare things. I think like Russ Feingold was in Wisconsin. He's a leftist, but he was an honest leftist. He voted his conscience. He didn't vote the way uh, he was told by Hillary Clinton to vote. So those people in the Senate are almost non-existent, and there may be a dozen of them on both sides of the aisle in the, in the House of Representatives. But once you get to know congressmen and you, oh, I, I was once given a tour of some senatorial offices by a Senate aide that I had known slightly when I was a young Democrat, that which is an entire other story. Um, and he showed me, and I said, why are they, why do the senators... Why does the inner office always have this huge sofa? And he says, well, that's where they bed the interns. You know that, don't you? I mean, that's why they all have these big sofas, because that's the whole point. You bring these attractive young people, and you bring, you bring them to Washington, and then they're seduced. Well, this is a nice thing to know. This is that, that you know, your, your kid goes to Washington to be part of some, uh, some uh, uh, Senate page program, and it, well, they're really being brought in as free prostitutes? Now, this, I'm sorry but to, to, to say the truth, but this is, this is the reality because this is the reality of our, our uh, political process. So, <clears throat> so you're not the only person to have identified these, these problems, Dr. Fleming. No. So what have been some of the suggested solutions? Okay. Now, in antiquity, they had a very simple view, which is if you want democracy or a democratic element in your society, you be, and, and, and because... No, no, uh, I'm, I've ne I'm not in favor of democracy at all, but you have to have a democratic element as a check on the arrogance of the ruling class. In, you know, for a while in Rome, they tried it through the, the, the Tribuni Plebis. There, there are a number of different means by which the rich and powerful don't get to lord it over everybody and steal their money and, and, and have things their own way. And, and at Rome and at, and at Athens, it was the meeting of the people. And they had they had a comitia in Rome, the electoral assemblies, and at Athens you had the ecclesia, the 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 uh, the, the the public meeting of of the citizenry, 
and that only through those face-to-face communities where all the citizens, the actual male citizens, could, could, could uh, sit and vote and pass resolutions. But what happens when you have the Roman Empire, which they, you had by the, by, certainly by the time of the Punic Wars, when you have this vast empire, or the even vaster empire called the United States of America? <clears throat> we have this problem of scale, as our friend Don Livingston would say. And the problem of scale in a representative system is that where originally a congressman may have had a district with a few thousand people, that district is now hundreds of thousands of people. So the, the, you would have to have, if you wanted to maintain the same ratio of, Congre- of, of representative to, uh, to electors, you would have to have this a vast Congress with thousands and thousands of, uh, of congressmen, which would be uh, unworkable. Now, one of the things which the Brits do and we don't, and it forces the MP to get out there and meet the people and listen to what they have to say, they don't allow much political advertising during an an election season. So if you want to get your message out, you actually have to go and meet small, smallish groups of, uh, of the voters over and over and over because you can't buy two hours on the BBC or on Sky News. They, they, don't, they don't allow this kind of, this kind of advertising or, or even in the newspapers. It's very restricted. And that would be one small step to ban political advertising. Well, of course, the Republicans would go wild because they they, they raise more money. But with the with the <laughs> well, with some, the pro- <laughs> something else I like is that the current government, thirty days before a general election, can no longer use the bully pulpit to their advantage. Yes, yes, exactly. And uh, imagine if uh, if American presidents uh, had that. I mean, poor uh, watching Obama. You know, he never quit campaigning from the day he was sworn into office. Constantly traveling, eating up taxpayer money, uh, doing nothing but campaigning. Now, Don Livingston, who has done as much as anyone, if not more than anyone, to draw attention to this problem, he has a solution. But I, I don't think it's not going to ever. No part of the solution is going to work in our lifetime. That is uh, to break up these large governments, including not just the whole United States, but California would have to become three or four states. There are three or four independent governments. And uh, New York, all these big states would be broken up. But certainly we would, we would, we would break up the United States. Now, <clears throat> this is not going to happen. Uh, part, part because people who hold power don't give it up. I remember way back uh, when they had things called the new federalism back in the 80s and 90s, and they were talking about how the Congress was going to, was there were people in Congress who were going to give power uh, of self-government back to the states. And I laughed. And people who are supposed to be hard-headed political realists said, well, why do you laugh at that? I said, when has a crook ever given up the means of making dishonest money? The, the, the basis for political career in America is what I call bribability. As a small town uh, uh, representative in the city hall, you, you're maybe, you bribes are only a couple of hundred dollars. 
You go to the state legislature, it's up into the thousands. You get into the Congress, people have to pay you tens of thousands of dollars to get your support for what they want. So why would you give bribeability back to people who are at the bottom end of the scale in a state legislature when the whole point is you want to increase the bribeability of your own class, yourself and your partners of cr- in crime in the Congress? So that's not going to work. But you're and you're certainly these people will never short of of an, uh, a violent breakup of the United States. These people are never going to turn loose power. The whole thing may come crumbling down sometime. But it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen in my lifetime or in my children's lifetime. Now, notice, by the way, notice that in the California secession movement, which had people so excited, we go, well, thank goodness we can get California out. The leader of the California secession movement turns out to be a crook in pay of the Russians. And he's actually, when, this, when he was outed, he, went, he, has, he has left the United States to go and live in Russia. So this is, believe me, you can't trust secessionist politicians or, or small-scale politicians in America any more than you can trust the people in Washington. They're, it's one set of crooks against another. Now, that's a good thing. It was a good thing under the Constitution of, of, uh, of the 1780s. It was a good thing to pit the states against the federal government and to try to pit the Congress against the president, against the Supreme Court. Dividing the powers up and making them compete gives a sphere of freedom to, to, to the rest of us. But we're not going to have, uh, we're not going to, breaking up the United States as much as it might look like an ideal in principle, it's, it's just not going to happen. I remember in the old days when we, when we formed the League of the South, and people started talking about secession. This would have been, you know, in the in the 1990s. And I said, well, okay, let's suppose let's suppose the South secedes and we have a new Southern Republic. Who is the most powerful uh, po- politician today, in in produced by the South? William Jefferson Clinton. Who's the second most powerful politician? Uh, Al Gore. And I just went down. I said, this you got the same problem. You're not going to well, you're you you're not eliminating human nature. And so you can't eliminate the problem. Southern politicians are as crooked as northern politicians. Right, there's, res- there's nobody yeah. good on the bench. No, no, no. So, so we, we, uh, my, I'm arguing for a Machiavellian, realpolitik understanding of the world we live in. And that, it, and that lying to ourselves about the nature of it prevents us from even confronting it, much less doing anything about it. Then there's, of course, the, uh, <clears throat> there is the other answer, which is the answer I've always advocated, and which, to be fair, uh, Livingston also advocates, <clears throat> which is a decentralized federalism uh, along the model of the, philosoph- the German Calvinist philosopher Johannes Althaus, otherwise known as Althusius. And this is an organic system by which every higher level of government depends for its legitimacy on lower level government. His model for this was the Holy Roman Empire during, during, during his period, where if, the, uh, if an emperor died, then the electors ha- were given the power to, uh, in theory, it, it passed into one dynasty eventually, the Habsburgs, but were given the power to elect the next emperor. Well, what happens if the failure of, let's say, uh, a dynasty of an elector uh, and, well, then the barons of his realm get together and uh, elect 
the next elector. Well, what if what if a baron and his estate collapse? Well, then the knights of you know under him will will figure these things out. In other words, instead of having a system whereby the emperor or the president of the United States dictates everything, like how, what textbook your child is going to use, or it comes up with a silly program like No Child Left Behind, dictating what local schools do. No, power will bubble up from the bottom in a decentralized system. This is to a large extent how Switzerland works today. And we, we, we're, we don't go into that. But, you know, if you want a, a major change in Swiss policy, it has to be elected uh, by the federal government, has to be ch- uh, uh, passed. Then by the can- each canton has to pass it. And then within the cantons, there are communes, that is, cities, little city states with their own rights and privileges, and they have to pass it. So if you want to become a citizen, you have to be approved at all three levels, which is why it's very difficult to become a citizen in Switzerland. Yes, so, I, 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 I'm no fan of democracy, but I'm a big fan of the Swiss and how they do things. I, I remember reading, I think it was last year, that one lady uh, has had her uh, citizenship um, constantly uh, declined by people in her canton because she was, ca- she was campaigning against cowbells as injurious to cow's health. Yeah. And her neighbors had had just about enough of that. And so she will not be becoming a, be becoming a Swiss <laughs> citizen anytime soon. There are consequences for being uh, a, a bad neighbor. But uh, I see that as well, Dr. Fleming, in the devolved um, governments of Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. And it seems that Brexit is really only increasing uh, those regional um, desires uh, really coming from old nations. And I think that in those situations, Switzerland or in the United Kingdom, there is such a sense uh, of nationhood that, that goes that goes back a, a long time that that maybe is a bit easier, whereas the states lost their arguments so early, potentially in the United States, that, you know, how do, how do they, how would they go about making that case? Or I think about how dependent a, a state like Montana is. Yeah. How, how would Montana exist on its own, even if it were to, to try to join a, the nearest neighboring nation? It would be a drain on Canada's finances as well. Well, so. the, um, the, one of the first things you could do, by the way, for these Western states, in the case of uh, Alaska is the most outrageous example, but in general, in the Western states, the federal government owns half the, half the land. And so the federal government decides on, on land use, if it wants to set it aside for a national park and not allow any farming or ranching or mineral development, or if the federal government wants to make money by selling mineral rights or leasing them. But this is, this is not land that should belong to the federal government at all. This should be, this land is, should be 100% of the property of the people of Montana. And so one of the first things that would happen is there'd be this great if you if you did begin a process of devolution and you you turn the land and mineral rights you turn them all over to the the people themselves and this would be a tremendous accession of wealth to the to the state and and would would really uh, allow them to make decisions about their own future but it's certainly true that in most parts of the united states they have lost the habit of self-government, and certainly they have uh, very little 
uh, identity. People in Texas still have a pretty strong Texas identity, and I would say most of the southern states, Alabama, Louisiana, South Carolina. Yeah, say uh, South Carolinians definitely have a sense of that. <laughs> as long as they can keep those Yankees from, from polluting everything. But Yes, well, they, they can't. I mean, all these snowbirds come moving down, ruin, ruining, ruining uh, for example, the low country of South Carolina. Now, some of these snowbirds turn out to be good southerners and good South Carolinians, but you, they've just got too many, uh, too, too much too rapidly. But uh, but they do have uh, they do have a tradition. Now it is interesting that among the four or five crookedest states in the union, which one would include, say, Arkansas, Illinois, New Jersey, but you also have South Carolina and Louisiana. I mean, it is embarrassing to uh, to realize that both Nikki Haley and Lindsey Graham are South Carolinians. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's uh, at least the, the, the Louisiana politicians are much more colorful way, uh, about their 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 vice and corruption. But uh, uh, so at least they have an entertainment value. All right, Dr. Fleming. So uh, you would. So I th- I'm thinking about the phrase no taxation without representation. And, and you're crossing a, a big line through taxation without. And it just says no representation, exclamation <laughs> mark. Um, it's not. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention before we close out today's episode to, to, to bring together um, the points we've discussed? Well, what I'd, I'd like to close out is with this thought. Uh, anything we're going to say on this podcast, or in fact, if we had, it wouldn't matter if we had 10 million listeners, or it wouldn't matter if I controlled the Republican Party. Uh, very little in the way of practical reform is going to be done. What we can do, both in our, uh, for ourselves and our friends and our colleagues, we can give up the delusions on which this, uh, and illusions on which our, our system is based. Whatever, uh, whatever solution we try to have to rebuilding the, these little commonwealths in America that, that existed and taking power back from the, the, the gangsters in Washington, whatever strategy one chooses, the absolute worst strategy is to continue to mouth slogans about representative democracy when you begin with, when you begin with a, just an absolute palpable lie, then people who accept the lie then are lulled to sleep and they allow they allow the gangsters to continue to impose upon them. So you, you, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Well, for more truth, tune in for another episode next time. Uh, as always, Dr. Fleming, thanks for your time. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.